Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest, welcome Michael Berwick. Very happy to have you with us today. It's great to be with you, Bill. Can't wait to get started. Uh, I understand that we're talking to you today from your office in Boston. That's right. Yes, I'm a practicing attorney in Boston. I wear a bunch of different hats around here, but uh, I'm talking with you today in my capacity as a trustee and one of only a handful of uh, trustees in the United States that is a specific type of trustee pursuant to a tax strategy called the Deferred Sales Trust. And I understand you have another office uh, down south a little bit. Yes, I've been a practicing attorney down in the state of Florida since 1995, and I maintain a satellite office down there in the Palm Beach area because we have a lot of folks from the Northeast that have retired down to Florida but still have holdings and highly appreciated assets. And we have, uh, based on tax, state tax issues and so forth, a lot of folks who want their trusts to be organized uh, under the laws of, of the state of, of Florida as well. So it's helpful to have that. Yeah, especially in the wintertime in Massachusetts when you can go down there and kind of take in some sunshine. That is a good uh, fringe benefit of, of maintaining an office down in South Florida, yes, sir. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Michael, tell me a little bit about how you segued into deferred sales trusts from a regular law practice. The exciting thing about all of this is that I arrived on the scene with regard to the Deferred Sales Trust armed with three law degrees from Georgetown University. My JD, which was granted to me back in uh, 1995, and then two LLMs or postdoctoral law degrees, technically a master's of law, two different ones. One of them in tax law, the other one in securities law and financial regulation. All of those degrees from Georgetown. And then I've had ample experience in these different areas over the years. This deferred sales trust is, in fact, a tax strategy, but it results in the sellers of highly appreciated assets investing or having invested for the trust that was formed for their benefit in baskets of marketable securities and so forth. So even though I function as the trustee, which is like the the ringmaster, if you will, in a circus, uh, and making sure that, that, that everybody's doing his or her, her job effectively, other than the client, the seller, who becomes the note holder in the, in the process of all this, which we'll get into later, the two main parties that are working on behalf of the seller slash note holder are the law firm that is drafting all of the legal documents necessary to accomplish this in a legal and prudent uh, manner, and the financial advisor who's working with the seller on the different investment strategies and the specific investments 
that the trust is going to prospectively invest in once the trust is formed and once formed and once the asset is is sold. So the fact that I've got considerable background education and experience in securities law and the rules of the road as far as FINRA, the Securities Exchange Commission, et cetera, on the back end. And uh, obviously, I've been a practicing lawyer now for uh, nearly, uh, well, since 1995, coming up on on 23 years in, in the fall, gives me uh, the ability to uh, interact with the players on the on the legal side and to understand uh, exactly what they're doing with respect to the document formation and construction and to be able to have a high high level discussions with with those folks about how something should be worded or what have you even though I'm not per se functioning as the attorney in this case but rather as the trustee well, what's the popularity of this strategy? Can you tell me when it started and how popular it is and how many people you think really know about it? The strategy was conceived roughly 22 years ago by a brilliant tax attorney who also happens to be a gifted certified public accountant based in the Midwest. The gentleman's name is Todd Campbell. He is a genius and you don't have to take my word for it. I'll share with you a quick story. Several years ago, when I was on the staff of a very large uh, national law firm, the head of the tax department, Harvard-educated, very well-respected, almost legendary in tax law circles, he and I had a series of discussions about this strategy and about the, the various players that are involved, and that resulted in a conference call with uh, Todd Campbell. And I could tell that there was probably a fair degree of skepticism there based on the fact that my colleague at the firm was a Harvard guy and based on the fact that this deferred sales trust was very little known at that point. And it took probably about 20 minutes on the phone with, with Todd on a speakerphone where for this legendary tax lawyer to just open his mouth and, and whisper to me in the midst of this, wow, this guy is a total genius. Todd created the structure, and, and the structure has evolved over time. It's grown. It's become more finely honed year in and year out. And it's really been in its current state of, of development uh, for a good number of years now. It's solid. I believe the equity that has moved through the Deferred Sales Trust or the equity that's utilized the Deferred Sales Trust is, is approaching or maybe surpassed $5 billion. So it's a lot of money. Like much of real estate, it, it was very quick to catch on on the West Coast, which is where the marketing arm of the Deferred Sales Trust is based out in Orange County. On the West Coast, there have been the bulk of the, the transactions. And there have been some very large transactions that are now gaining steam in terms of both the quantity and the quality throughout the United States and especially here in the Northeast, which is a market that is is mine. Uh, the East Coast is, is, is really my bailiwick and it is my job. And one of the reasons why I'm thrilled to be on the phone with you this morning talking about uh, this is to essentially enlighten the people in, in not only the clients, but their trusted advisors, their 
real estate brokers, their business brokers, their lawyers, their accountants, whomever, about the fact that this is a valid strategy that that is is legal, is is low risk, and is uh, is something that has been fully, fully, fully uh, embraced by investors, by regulators. It's evolving, and our goal here is to really get these numbers of of, of transactions and the quality of the transactions, meaning the size of the deals, uh, and 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 obviously the deal flow, the number of deals up on the East Coast to you know approach where where the West Coast and California in particular have been over over the past ten, fifteen, twenty years. Michael, up to this point in my business dealings in commercial real estate, the, the sale and purchase of apartment buildings, office buildings, mixed-use buildings. I find that the most popular strategy is the traditional 1031 exchange, which is based on the IRS code 1031, where people identify that they want to use that strategy to defer capital gains and depreciation recapture taxes, capital gains on that. They are forced to buy another property, and not everybody wants to buy another property when they're selling a property. So then came something called the Delaware Statutory Trust. Unfortunately, it has the same capital letter acronym, DST, as a deferred sales trust, but they shouldn't be confused because they're two completely different things, and I'm going to ask you to go into that in a minute. Delaware Statutory Trust enables somebody to identify an exchange and utilize the 1031 strategy. And while they're doing that, they're involved now in a more passive investment. So that's good for somebody who's, who maybe you know doesn't want to own and manage the real estate anymore. But when I found out about the Deferred Sales Trust, I said, this takes the best of everything and really gives control back to the investor. And so talk a little bit about the differences between the traditional 1031, the Delaware Statutory Trust, you know, just a couple of bullet points and and why somebody would, you know, still do that depending on what their strategy is or use the deferred sales trust strategy instead. Great question. And I, I appreciate it. And I am somebody that has made use of Section 1031 and from time to time still make use of Section 1031. It's an important tool for real estate investors. Same thing goes for something passive like a Delaware Statutory Trust. What I can tell you, though, is that based on legal developments that have come down in the new tax law, which I know we're going to get into, and based on market developments that uh, suggest that we're at the very top of a real estate cycle and a bunch of other things, um, including the, the aging baby boomers and the, the desire to escape being sort of trapped into managed real estate or real estate as an asset class to begin with uh, as a prerequisite for tax deferral is bringing more and more investors over to the deferred sales trust to kick it around, to, to learn about it, and ultimately to, to utilize it. And the differences, I will be happy to point them out to you. In a 
traditional 1031 exchange, you are governed by Section 1031, which it can be a daunting tax provision, a finite number of days to make various identifications in writing of replacement properties that you are considering using in, in, in the context of Section 1031 to replace your existing property that you're going to relinquish, which is sort of a synonym for sell, but in 1031 parlance, you're relinquishing your existing property and you're replacing the debt and equity with new property, which is your replacement property. And you've got 180 days to close. When you're talking about commercial real estate, you're talking about due diligence, you're talking about a whole bunch of factors that are difficult to ascertain in 45 days and can make things difficult to even close if you have identified within your 45 days in a timely manner. And it's funny that you bring that up. You know, I see sometimes people scrambling to find a property uh, that they can relinquish the existing property and move into the new property based on these guidelines that you just talked about, these timeline guidelines. And sometimes they end up buying a property they really don't want or one that doesn't have the kind of value add that they were looking for because they have to complete this project or pay the capital gains on the relinquished property. So yes, it is it is daunting. So that's that's spot on. Yes. And then I but then I find that, you know, the alternative to that then became the Delaware Statutory Trust. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? If, if I will get into that in a moment if I can just spend a couple more minutes on on section 1031 if you oh, don't mind. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, go um, ahead. Yeah. With respect to 1031, another issue that we're seeing a lot lately, it's wonderful that sellers want to sell into a very high market. But if they're going to replace their property within the time provisions, they're typically replacing with other real estate assets that are at the top of the markets. They're buying in. And then this gets into complex things like capitalization rates and so forth. It's not the time or the place to get into cap rates right now. But suffice it to say that in this real estate environment, word of pearl of wisdom when it comes to real estate is buy low, sell high. When real estate is in a cycle where it's at the top of the cycle, it's very difficult. You can, you can sell high, but then because of the time constraints of 1031, you're also going to be buying high, which means someplace down the road, because we all know that real estate is cyclical, you may wind up with an asset that's actually losing value. And then you've got to say, was it worth it to defer the taxes to buy into an overvalued property and, and, and so forth? I actually had a friend that that happened to. She sold a piece of property, uh, vacant land, and then bought a triple net property uh, that was, you know, passive for her, managed by a management company, had a national anchor tenant. I think it might even been a single tenant property. And this, when she sold the original one, it all happened at the top of the market, and the the triple net that she bought ended up going down in value. And at the end of the day, she probably didn't net more than if she had just paid the capital gains because she eventually sold that property than if she had just paid the capital gains to begin with. That's a story that's not an uncommon one. And I, I just would add to that, still sticking with 1031 for a moment, and we will jump to Delaware in a moment. You used to be able to do like-kind exchanges for 
all sorts of highly appreciated assets, including art collections and automobile collections and so forth and so on. That's now gone under the tax code. It's just real estate. And the Deferred Sales Trust, once we get into it, you'll understand that the Deferred Sales Trust is a solution for any highly appreciated asset, whether it's real estate, whether it's other types of uh, property and collectibles, whether it's a going concern business. If you've started a business for $250,000 20 years ago, and now you still own the business and someone wants to come along and buy that business for $15 million, you're going to pay capital gains tax on the sale of that business from the difference between your cost basis and your, and your sale, sales price without any further assumptions. Uh, you're going to get shellac on your capital gains taxes. So you could never 1031 a business. The Deferred Sales Trust can also act as a safety mechanism for a busted 1031. If you try to do a 1031 exchange and fail, if you've got the right language with your qualified intermediary that says, if for, the, for any reason the, this 1031 exchange should fail, don't send the money to me because I don't want to pay the taxes. Direct it to a Deferred Sales Trust and you've got to give them the specifics and everything else. There are a lot of applications. So 1031 non-Delaware is a great way to go for people that know what they're doing in real estate, that understand real estate cycles, that have the wherewithal to get through uh, down cycles and survive and everything else and want to remain invested in real estate for a long time to come and want to only remain invested in real estate. Because with the deferred sales trust, you're t you're, and again, we'll get into this more specifically later, but ultimately you're taking a single asset class real estate and what comes out on the other end is a trust that can be filled with stocks, bonds, mutual funds, other types of investments, including real estate in the form of real estate investment trusts uh, and other types of real estate that can be purchased as part of that portfolio. So it allows for all kinds of diversification. In the middle of all this, you've got these packaged products like the Delaware Statutory Trusts, which were preceded by the tenant and common syndications. Uh, the tenant common syndications were at the very beginning of the point when the IRS amended its rules to allow fractional ownership uh, in 1031 exchanges. Back a decade or more ago, really at the beginning of the 2000s, so 15, 16, 17 years ago, at the beginning 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, these tenant in common deals became highly popular and it was a passive solution to a 1031 exchange. And it seemed like uh, it was just a, an, an amazing thing. People were investing left and right with professional you know, companies that were scooping up real estate of all different asset classes and syndicating them either as real estate or ultimately through the securities world. And the tenant in common structure, because it required unanimity of, of the investors and for a whole bunch of hyper-technical reasons, was not a great structure to maintain the purchasing group when cycles went down. And you know, when cycles went up, everybody got their checks, they were doing great. But when things began to cycle down, or when there were individual prob problems with individual pieces of, of property, with real estate investment property, there were all kinds of problems. You have people scattered hither and yon and 
getting all of the investors together, even telephonically, proved to be next to impossible. So a lot of the tenant in common uh, properties wound up, you know, unfortunately, not doing uh, well. Some of them wound up doing great, but as an industry, the the structure from a legal structure, uh, it tended to move away from uh, the tenant in common. And, and what really replaced it was the Delaware Statutory Trust. And I'm not going to get into the legal definitions of, of the trust, but suffice it to say, it is it's just a much more nimble structure than that which preceded it. And it is a good alternative for those sellers that want to sell their real estate. Take advantage of the 1031 rules. Have that real estate passively managed by experts and continue to remain involved with real estate in the 1031 uh, context through uh, a Delaware statutory trust uh, product. That being said, Many of the same issues that I just pointed to with 1031 exchanges are still present with Delaware Statutory Trust. The investors are still married to a single asset class, real estate. Even though there's professional management and everything else, real estate can still cycle down and does cycle down and cycle back up again. And I think the underwriting's gotten better. And I think in general, some of these Delaware statutory trust properties and, and syndications are, are fantastic, but they really serve that investor who is intent on remaining in real estate. As I mentioned before, the, the deferred sales trust achieves many of the same goals, primarily tax deferral, legal, accepted tax deferral, accepted by the IRS tax deferral, but with so many different features, specifically the flexibility, because it's not a like-kind exchange, it's a structured installment sale. What does that mean? It means that you achieve tax deferral, but you wind up without any major restrictions on what the trust that is going to house the sale proceeds from the highly appreciated asset can invest in. So you're able to do non-correlated assets and you're going to be highly diversified and better able to withstand financial downturn because of diversification and better and if one sector goes south and other sectors are doing better, you're going to be able to hedge based on, you know, that level of diversification that only the deferred sales trust when it comes to legal tax deferral, really the deferred sales trust is the only, only one of the three ways to defer, if you will. The Delaware statutory trust really being a subset of 1031s, the deferred sales trust really provides the only legal way to achieve a level of diversification and freedom from being married to a single asset class. So uh, if I'm in that single asset class of real estate and I do want to diversify and I do want to use the deferred sales trust strategy, does it matter how I own the real estate? It could be in a revocable or an irrevocable trust. It could be in a C corp or an S corp. It could be, I mean, most people own real estates in LLCs or it could just, sometimes people just own it in their individual names. Sometimes it's a partnership. Does that impact this at all? In general, no. If you have listeners 
that are holding real estate or other assets for that matter in something other than LLCs, I would definitely urge them to reach out to me to give me a call and we can bat this around with the attorneys. But I've absolutely seen C corporations. I've seen just about every business organizational structure under the sun result in a very well-crafted deferred sales trust. So the short answer is no, it really doesn't matter. But as an attorney, and even though I'm not functioning as one here with respect to to my trustee uh, business, my trust company, uh, I would always defer to the legal team that does the document preparation and presents the uh, legal documents. I would defer to them on that question when things get really eccentric or out there. But the general answer to your question is it really doesn't matter. And we talked a little bit about disposition asset vs. acquisition asset. And you said that, you know, there can be a lot of diversity here. It's a very, very nimble strategy. Uh, Does it matter if you're doing it across states, across countries? States, no, it doesn't matter whatsoever. Uh, With respect to foreign countries, clearly this is a strategy that is designed to achieve tax deferral and a bunch of other goals within the framework of the United States uh, tax code. Again, when we get into cross-border issues, that's going to be a facts and circumstances thing. But uh, in general, uh, it doesn't, uh, it, it, it should not matter whatsoever within the confines of the United States or uh, within the confines of, of any jurisdiction which utilizes the U.S. tax code shouldn't matter at all. So when someone does a 1031 exchange, a traditional one, they're typically deferring capital gain on regular depreciation, uh, and also they are deferring capital gain on the actual gain. So if someone bought a property for $10 million and now they're selling it for fifteen, that's a market gain of $5 million, but they also may have depreciated the property down to $8 million during the time of ownership, and that's uh, depreciation recapture. So they have a total gain of $7 million between the two. Is that accurate? And how does the Deferred Sales Trust handle that? Is it, is it any different? So first of all, I want to nudge you a little here and tell you that everybody speaks in the shorthand about deferring capital gains, deferring capital gains. What you're really deferring is your capital gains tax obligations. And you know, remember, those capital gains are your gains. They're yours to keep. What you're really deferring is your otherwise obligation to pay capital gains taxes on the sale of the appreciated assets. With respect to depreciation recapture, it is just like in a 1031 exchange, it is folded into the deal. So if the question is, in a deferred sales trust, are you able to defer your depreciation recapture in the same manner as you would in a 1031 exchange along with your capital gains taxes more generally? The answer is yes. Uh, one of the other aspects of a traditional 1031 exchange is that if the person that owns all the real estate that has deferred the gains over a period of time, years, decades maybe, then passes away, the people who are the beneficiaries of that estate, 
get something called a stepped-up basis, which pretty much wipes out all the previous gains that were deferred, and they start at zero. Unfortunately, you know, their loved one is no longer with us, but in terms of inheriting the estate of that person, uh, they're able to wipe out all these previous gains. In the deferred sales trust, how is that handled? That is a an amazing question, and I'm really glad. If you hadn't brought that question up, I would have raised it uh, on my own. The number one best aspect or facet of an exchange pursuant to Section 1031 is the step up in basis upon death. There's nothing like it. Just to flesh it out a little bit more for the audience, if you've got somebody that's been investing in real estate for 50 or 60 or 70 years and you had a $50,000 investment and then that real estate asset grew to be worth $500,000 and then they did a 1031 exchange and the $500,000 was invested and grew to be a $5 million asset and then they did another 1031 exchange and sold it for a bundle of money and then that turned into a $50 million asset and now you've got all of this deferred, because it hasn't gone away, all of this deferred gain over years and decades and so forth from 50,000 up to, what did I say, 50 million at the end? And you would think, my goodness, somebody's going to wind up having to pay for that down the road, right? Right. So the step up in basis, as you point out, ultimately, when that real estate investor passes away, the heirs are going to get a step up in basis. And for those non-tax people out there, that are sitting there scratching their heads saying and running to Google to find out what the hell a step what the heck a step up in basis is it really just means that from a from a tax consequence if the heirs were to sell the property the next day the next week etc for that 50 million dollars that the property is now worth they wouldn't pay any taxes on it because it's that it wipes the slate clean. Well, they wouldn't pay any capital gains taxes, but they may have estate taxes. Oh, exactly. And that's, a, you know, I corrected you before you correct me. That's the way we <laughs> oh, do this, Oh, I'm right? not correcting so, you. I'm just adding. No, no, it's, you're right. There would be no capital gains. You already gave me a really good, uh, you already gave me a really good testimonial when you said I asked such a great question. So thank you. That was, a, <laughs> it was it's the key question. So that step up in basis is, is really key. It's, it is the most powerful part of real estate investing. And I don't just mean within the parameters of a 1031 exchange. I mean, in total, the step up in basis is the one thing that is, is the touchstone of long-term real estate investing. And in fact, to digress for just a moment, the step up in basis, I recall a little while ago when we were talking about the elimination of 1031 availability now under the, the new tax code to anything other than real property. Most of the legal prognosticators at the big law firms and the, the stuff that's probably mind-numbingly boring to most people, but the stuff that, that I read you know, before bed at night, the, the legal folks and the political folks that are trying to guess what Congress is going to do and so forth and so on. That's, this is how I make my living by being conversant in these things. Going into the uh, writing of the new tax code, it was thought by most prognosticators that the step up in basis was going to be the big change to 1031, specifically the elimination of the step up in basis uh, at death was going to be big 
you know, the, this whole tax uh, bill that came out and now the new tax law is a reflective of a whole bunch of different crazy, zany uh, compromises between different political factions and so forth. It's not consistent at all. And it's, you can see different parties benefiting from different aspects and whatnot, but this was one of those things that they left in. So the step up in basis is still uh, available. Now, in turning to the deferred sales trust, while there is no per se step up in basis, the meaning that in theory, this capital gains liability or tax is going to someday be due. Um, without getting too far into the mechanics of the trust just yet, because I don't want to jump the gun, but suffice it to say, you've deferred the taxes on a $10 million real estate sale in the form of a deferred sales trust. And that $10 million is now held by the trust and invested in a whole bunch of different assets that are producing eight, eight and a half percent, something like that on an annual basis for the life of the trust. And the corpus of the trust and the entire trust itself are completely inheritable by the heirs. And while there's no step up in basis, the trust can be amended and re-amended and amended again to essentially last into almost perpetuity. You can't literally write a trust document that lasts in perpetuity because of something uh, in, in the legal world that lawyers will start smiling and, and shaking their heads and saying, thank goodness I don't have to deal with this anymore, but something called the rule against perpetuities. Because of the rule against perpetuities, you can't write these trusts to last perpetually, but they can be amended and extended and, and everything else to create uh, and preserve that income stream for generations to come. I guess what I'm saying is while there's no per se step up in basis, you can essentially achieve something akin to the same power, the same effect of the step up in basis upon death because of the flexibility within the trust documents themselves. All completely legal, you can preserve this income stream for after death for spouse, heirs, heirs of heirs, grandchildren, etc. And it's not like there is a fine line that says this gravy train is going to need to end on such and such a date, or it's not going to be respected. That being said, if the that's all relating to the income produced by the corpus of the trust. The corpus of the trust is made up of the proceeds of the, the initial sale that created the trust. So if, in fact, anybody has a need uh, to take principal out of that trust, the rule is that as principal, not the income, but as principal is received, whether it's by the party that formed the trust or by his or her spouse or heirs or whomever, um, the pro rata capital gains taxes that would, would be then applicable, meaning in whatever year it was taken out, whatever that capital gain, long-term capital gains tax rate is in that year, would that portion of the principal that is subject to tax would be taxed at the then applicable capital gains tax. But in the experience that I've had, most people, when they commit to this strategy, that's comforting for them to know that the principal is still there, but they're interested in that income stream for themselves and for their heirs. So you don't find a lot of people 
that are engaging in deferred sales trust strategies, taking principal back in a regular, ongoing manner or at all. They just leave that principal invested in the means that it's invested in. They can change around the investment strategy per their investment advisor. But typically, the principal remains in the trust, and it's that income stream that's producing significant income on an annualized basis that is is a key aspect to not only the the party that uh, that sold the asset and, and from which the trust was created, but for their 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 heirs and and so forth after their death. So I have a couple of questions about that. What you just explained to us, and by the way, that was great, and it definitely clarifies a lot of questions that I had around the cost basis. But now I want to talk a little bit about the breakdown of the principal and the income in the trust. Go ahead. So the principal always remains the value of the original trust, which were the proceeds of the sale of whatever the asset was. So let's say you used an example of $10 million. They would never be subject to capital gains tax on anything more than that $10 million, even though the trust has grown because of the investments. Sure. So let's talk about that. And some of that gets a little hyper-technical. And and again, in my capacity on this call, I would probably punt to the lawyers. But let's talk in general. Uh, without without really touching on on that last part, because in a typical situation, the um, the the trust is is going to distribute its its income year in and year out, and yes, it's certainly possible that the that the trust is going to is going to grow, uh, but typically the the trust is growing in a manner that is for the most part because it's in this trust that to talk about the capital gains taxes due on a secondary level uh, would be a little bit technical for this conversation. So without getting into that, let me identify for your audience the real critical tax portions of the trust. And to do so, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use an example. What is section 453? The deferred sales trust utilizes one and only one tax code section from the Internal Revenue Code. It is, in fact, Section 453, the installment sale provision. The installment sale provision, 453, has been around for nearly 100 years. It was enacted in, within the same time frame, and I don't have the date in front of me, but as Section 1031 itself. But that being said, Section 453 has little to do on its face with Section 1031. 453 was designed, and the reason why 453 will be here forever is because it's truly a part of our American fabric of life. It's not something designed for rich people. It's something designed for everybody. In fact, one of the most common uses of Section 453 is for folks that want to buy a house, and you've got a seller that wants to sell the house. And for whatever reason, the buyers cannot get a mortgage. And there's a lot of people out there that struggle with mortgage issues. And yet both parties still want to do the deal. And let's say that that seller does not have an immediate need to be paid off for the, for the property. The seller and the buyer will engage in a, an installment sale for which there's a note it's written, and the most important pieces of the note are principal, interest, and 
time frame. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that on the, the note will subject the buyer of the house to paying either interest only or interest plus principal periodically. So monthly, you know, annually, what have you, for a specific period of time. If it's interest only, obviously there's going to be a balloon payment at, at the end. But if it's interest in principal, you're going to have the same type of payment that somebody that was in a traditional mortgage would have. So what it is, is the seller is loaning the money that the seller is entitled to, to the buyer uh, for the purposes of buying this house. And the buyer is repaying that money either periodically or all at the end and paying interest at the very least uh, peri periodically. It is exactly the same calculus when it comes to the deferred sales trust. In the deferred sales trust, if I may, you've got a seller of a piece of property, and let's use our $10 million example. You've got a seller of a piece of property, and you've got some buyer that's interested in buying that property for, for $10 million. Instead of doing a straight sale, the seller delivers title to neutral party, non-related party is the legal terminology, somebody like myself, delivers title for about a split second to, to me. I convey title over to the buyer, the buyer then puts the cash proceeds of the $10 million into, wires the proceeds into an account that is a trust account that has been formed. And when we talk about trusts, there's all different types of trusts. I want you to think of the trust more than as a traditional trust as a vehicle, typically a limited liability company, but a vehicle that is you know, removed enough from the control of the seller so that the seller is not using this as sort of like a, a shell, if you will, to take the money. Um, so the funds come in and then the funds are promptly within 24 hours deployed into an investment scheme of, as I said, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, insurance products, REITs, what have you, that have been predefined in terms of the asset classes by the seller prior to going in to the creation of the trust and the financial advisor who then works for the trust to maintain these investments. And what you have is the income going back to the, to the seller. And you've got a situation where what's really happened here is that just like in the analogy that I just gave with the purchase of the house, the seller who would otherwise be entitled to that $10 million has in effect loaned that $10 million to this quote trust unquote, which takes the form of an LLC, which is controlled by a trustee, somebody like myself, in exchange, and this is all memorialized in legal writings, the promissory note and the, the trust and everything else is all documented and perfectly drafted to be legal and everything else. But the seller has loaned that $10 million that he or she would have been entitled to, to this trust and lets the trust basically invest how the trust wants to within a prescribed area of, of playing field in exchange for a specific rate of return that is uh, memorialized in the promissory note. So the trust itself is like our buyer that couldn't get a mortgage. The seller is the seller. 
And there's a long-term commitment there to repay at a specific interest rate or coupon rate on an annual basis that is the obligation of the trust back to the seller in the same way that our buyer that couldn't get a mortgage, let's say there's an 8% interest rate that the seller's charging the buyer. It's the same exact type of thing. So that interest is going that's paid every year on the note is going to take the form of ordinary income. So your $800,000 at 8% on a $10 million note is going to be taxable. Typically, while the taxpayer, the seller, now the note holder, is at a point where in, in his or her life where they're in a lower tax bracket and it's prudent tax planning. And, and yes, that's taxable at ordinary income rates. Technically, it's, it's interest or it's short-term capital gains, taxes or whatever. But we all know that, that the, the way the tax code is written, the short-term capital gains of under a year are taxed at the person's marginal rate at ordinary income tax rates. So that's that. And with respect to uh, principal, if principal is taken out, obviously you've got return of basis, which is not taxable. That's, that's the original investment that the person made in, in the underlying property that gave rise to all this, plus improvements and, and capital improvements and, and whatnot. And then after that, you would pay pro rata long-term capital gains tax rates on principal that's taken out periodically or at the end of the trust, if the trust actually does wind up and there's a balloon payment at the end and somebody down the line of succession decides, you know what, I think we're going to cash out and we really want that principal back and we're ready to pay the taxes. Or if for some reason, long-term capital gains tax rates actually go down in the future and they want to do some arbitragistic sort of uh, tax planning uh, there, you know, that's certainly a possibility. The good news is if tax capital gains taxes go up, you just leave the leave the asset in the uh the proceeds that make up the principal in the trust and you're still looking at, you know, terrific income year in, year out. It's not a concern. But if tax long term capital gains rates go go down and it, it makes sense to cash out, you know, there's always the opportunity to do that. You contact the trustee, we talk to the attorneys and we'd figure it out. So there's it's just a very nimble structure, but one that's respected by the IRS and also one in general that the IRS likes even better than uh, 1031 exchanges because of the step up in basis at death issue. In a 1031 exchange with the step up in basis at death, the IRS is basically written off in some part uh, ever seeing the accrued uh, capital gains taxes over generations or over decades that have led to a huge tax-deferred aggregation of, of wealth, whereas in a 453 transaction, because there is no step-up in basis at death, in theory anyway, somebody, if they want their principal back, is going to be paying capital gains taxes. And while that principal is producing all kinds of income year in and year out, the IRS loves the fact that they're going to be paying income tax on that. People often ask me, oh, you, are you still doing that tax shelter thing? This is the furthest thing in the world from the tax shelter. And I've been in the room with high-level people at the IRS. Remember, I told you I was educated at Georgetown and everything else. Down there all the time. I lived half of my life in Washington, D.C. I've got a lot of friends that do a lot of different things 
in Washington. And I'm down there professionally as well. I'm a member of the, the District of Columbia Bar. I'm also a member of the United States Tax Court uh, Bar. I, I've sat with IRS people that have looked at this structure and you know, we've talked about it and they said, this is just a really good use of a Section 453 transaction to create some tax deferral in lieu of a 1031 exchange. And there's just no issue with it from a, from, a, from a taxation standpoint, if it's done correctly and it's done the way my colleagues out in the Midwest, uh, as far as the law firm goes, and uh, as far as the other team that markets this strategy out in California, the way that they, and they work together, the way that they've uh, created this and the way that they enforce its use and, and so forth and so on. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm sorry. I'm like, gasp- I'm, I'm like gasping for breath. It's exactly why the listeners came here to listen to this, because they want to know the nuts and bolts, you know, not just a, a high level explanation of it, but really the nuts and bolts. So now I have a couple more questions. Uh, and I think, I think these will be pretty easy to answer, won't require as much explanation. Uh, first, I want to make a statement. The statement is, is that when someone who owns real estate because we are talking about real estate, even though other assets can come into play. But when someone owns real estate, they have to think about their long-term plan in order to decide which of these strategies will work best for them over a period of time and then eventually for their estate and they're the beneficiaries of their estate. But the question I have around that is if someone does a deferred sales trust, can they then use that deferred sales trust to buy a piece of real estate outside of the trust and do a 1031 into that real estate so that they can get back to this place of having the stepped up basis? Is that too fancy full of of an opportunity? It is not uncommon that some investors want to take a portion of the funds that are in the trust and actively invest them in additional real estate, but also to create that level of diversification among the other asset classes and so forth. It is indeed possible to do. It takes a little bit of extra lawyering and a few additional documents. And yes, it is possible. And I have been the trustee in at least four different trusts within the last year alone where real estate was purchased as part of the trust funds under you know, a whole legal regime that uh, on, that sits on top of the, the 453 transaction. As far as 1031 uh, property, I have also been uh, the trustee and have witnessed numerous times the trust making investments on, on its own behalf in accordance with the asset class distribution of the of the seller slash note holder, uh, where Delaware statutory trusts, for example, which we talked about, are a, a subset of of 1031 property that are purchased as one of the investments and as an asset class from the body of the of the trust from the trust's investments. Same thing with REITs, which are not 1031able. It's certainly available, depending on what the specific needs and wishes of the seller. Flash note holder are so when they do that though are they able to recreate this stepped up basis opportunity? Not really. It's not your client that just sold this 
big building and everything else that is doing the, the exchange. In, in the hypothetical that you gave me, it would be the trust itself that's doing the exchange. So it gets a little bit complicated. What I would advise in a situation like that is, let's say you've got a client that's selling this property for $10 million and wants to do a 1031 exchange in part, but also wants some of the flexibility, the diversification, and everything else that comes along with the deferred sales trust. Whatever that ratio is, whether it's $3 million into the 1031 and $7 million into the deferred sales trust or half and half or whatever, I would say the, the most prudent thing to do is to take the, the proceeds and do a partial 1031 exchange where you're making that 3 or 4 or $5 million that's going into the 1031 replacement property subject to uh, the step-up in basis upon death and, and the rest of it you'd still be tax deferred and would go into the deferred sales trust and be deployed into stocks, bonds, mutual funds, insurance products, et cetera. So when someone is consulting about whether or not they want to do something like this, obviously they have to think about the long-term plan and they have to engage all the professionals, yourself, um, tax attorneys, accountants to say, if I do this or I do that, what's the outcome going to be? This is the outcome I want. And then create a strategy, a long-term strategy in order to benefit the most. And if this is something that they decide they're not going to do, uh, then they have the backup of the, the traditional 1031 exchange or the Delaware Statutory Trust. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between those strategies and the cost of those strategies. I have several questions around that. First of all, what additional required participants and the role of each are there in this strategy? Who does the record keeping and what are the reporting requirements and who is ultimately accountable for that? What's the cost to execute this initially and what are the ongoing costs? And does the use of the deferred sales trust strategy change? Who is at the closing and does it impact the typical closing costs that you would have at a closing? Let's start off with your 1031 exchange. So you're going to have traditional closing costs. You're also going to pay a qualified intermediary uh, service to uh, handle the 1031 exchange. That's a fairly nominal cost. When you go to something like a Delaware statutory trust, you're paying a lot of money for the purchase of that real estate, that portfolio that's going to be part of that Delaware uh, statutory trust, you're paying management fees, you're paying a whole lot. So your 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 load on a Delaware statutory trust, just in terms of acquisition, maybe seven eight you know percent, as well as ongoing management fees that are going to cut into your um, income stream. That being said, you're also getting a lot for your money. So to compare the two and say, oh, I'd rather do a 1031 exchange on my own and not go into one of these Delaware products, you've got to be prepared financially as well as time, energy, toilets, trash, all the things, tenants, everything that comes with being a, a landlord. Um, when it comes to the deferred sales trust, I think what you'll find is that when you take a look at the fees, 
they're still extremely nominal and the fee structure was set up to be institutional. The folks that created and market the deferred sales trust, I think that they were very, very smart. They realized that this is a volume business. They firmly believe that they've got a strategy that works better than 1031 exchange. And their goal is to make sure that everybody is happy and to make sure that everybody that uses the deferred sales trust strategy goes and tells 10 friends and they tell 10 friends and they tell 10 friends because that's the objective here. It's not to go to town financially on any seller of any individual asset. That being said, you are looking at a legal fee that is based on a percentage of the asset that's being sold, or I should say, typically the amount of the sale price that's actually going into the deferred sales trust. That is a range, and the the percentage gets lower and lower the higher the amount of funds that are actually going in to the trust is. For example, you've got a range that's going to range between 1% and 1.5%. It's not a high percentage, and it's not a huge, uh, a huge uh, difference between the one and the one and a half. If you're selling something that's where less than a million dollars, for example, is going to wind up forming the corpus of the of the trust, you're probably at 1.5%. For those listeners that are not math whizzes out there, you're talking about a total of uh, at $1 million, even $15,000 to do all of the legal work uh, to set up the trust and and the note and everything else, every bit of legal work that needs to, to get done. And then after that, the law firm is out. All they do is they remain in to do the tax returns every year for a very nominal fee, $1,000, $1,500, something like that. And obviously, it depends on the complexity of, of, of the trust. That, that number can go up to a few thousand dollars for much larger, more complex trusts. But essentially, as far as a big ticket item, they're out. Conversely, if you're selling an asset that's $10 million and much more complicated, you're going to be down at 1%. You may wind up paying $100,000 in legal fees if you're, selling, if you're putting $10 million into a deferred sales trust. That's a one-time fee, and it's typically charged just prior to closing. So it's actually entity, whether it's an individual or a partnership or an LLC or whatever that owns the real estate can write that off as a business expense. That's a, a fully expensable item. And again, I have a question about that. So do they have to come up with that money in advance of the closing? It can't be uh, no, it's paid taken out. out of the proceeds? No, it is out of the proceeds. What I'm oh, telling it's out you of the is proceeds. that okay. I'm not an expert on GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles, but it's done legally. It's done following GAAP. No, that's not money that uh, anybody needs to pay out of pocket. What I will share with you even better than that is that all of the work that all of these parties do, including the law firm, including the financial people, including somebody like myself, getting everybody doing what they're supposed to be doing and signing off on hundreds of documents, nobody gets paid until the seller decides to move forward with the transaction. An hour before closing, when all of this legal work has already been done and tens of thousands of dollars of legal time has been spent and financial planners' times and 
the trustees' time, all of these people that are educated and work really hard and spend a lot of time, if the person decides to go ahead and pay the taxes, they will never see a bill at all. I think that speaks volumes about the way that we operate. Somewhere between 1% and 1.5% goes to the law firm. And you say, why are they compensated like that? They're compensated like that because this same law firm that handles this work is the law firm that created the structure to begin with. And that this is their intellectual property and that is their compensation. So they handle, this law firm handles the legal work on every one of the deferred sales trusts and is compensated one time. And other than doing the tax returns and being fairly compensated just at the same rate that you'd pay your own CPA, the law firm is then out. They're there and they're available to me, the trustee, on behalf of the, the note holder, the seller, for the duration of the trust. But as far as fees and everything else, other than the tax returns after that, they're out. Thank you for that, Michael. I guess the second part of the equation is the ongoing fees. So ongoing, let's talk about that. There's two fees. One of them is a complete wash. What do I mean by that? If you've sold your $10 million property and you pay the taxes, after taxes, you've got $6.6 million. You're out of real estate. What are you going to do? Somebody in the, in the financial advisory, securities, whatever business is going to manage that money on your behalf and it's going to invest it on your behalf. And you're going to pay somewhere between 1% and 2% annually. Maybe it's a point and a quarter. Maybe it's 150, which is a point and a half. And I know several, several financial advisors that charge a full 2% every year for the management of uh, their clients' money and their clients happily pay that because they're rock stars you're going to pay an institutional rate of 1% a year. The trust is going to pay that to the financial advisor for managing all of the investments. It's extremely reasonable. It is a wash because you're going to pay it anyway. The only difference is the financial advisor is going to be investing 100% of your money rather than whatever fraction is left over by the time the state government where applicable and Uncle Sam get their hands on it and clean you out of after you've, you know, upon the payment of your capital gains taxes. So that's to me, that to me is a wash. It is a cost that most people would have anyway, and probably at a higher rate than 1%. And that 1% is charged year in and year out on the anniversary date of, of the formation of the, of the trust or at the time when the funds, the proceeds went into the trust. And it's based on the net asset value of the trust at that time. So if $10 million went into the trust in year one, and the trust, after paying you your, your agreed upon coupon rate for the investments based on what you've, what you've agreed to, still has, has, has had a great year and has $11 million in it, you've made an additional 10% in year two, that's gonna be 1% of $11 million. And the only other fee beyond that is my fee or another trustee if you opt to use somebody other than myself. And everybody's fee structure is the same. It's one half of 1% annually for managing all of this, for being responsible for the law firm, for being responsible for uh, the financial advisory firm, and for being available to the note holder 24 hours, seven days a week, 
365 days a year. The purpose of all this is to have an ongoing, robust relationship with their trustee, um, where the trustee is compensated a small amount each year for keeping everybody doing what they're supposed to be doing and always acting actively and and availably to uh, to the note holder. Thank you for answering those questions so definitively, Michael. My pleasure. And while you were answering those questions, I got the answer to one of my other questions, which is the requirement participants and the role of each. So let me tell that back to you, and then you tell me if I'm correct. This is a test. All right? See if I was listening closely. So the required participants are the trustee, which in this case would be you. The law firm, which is that law firm with the intellectual property that does all the paperwork leading up to the closing. They prepare all the trust and legal documents. And then the financial advisor who actually engages with the seller, the note holder of the trust, the person who owns the property, who's dispositioning the property prior to the closing to set up this financial plan of what the investments will be when the trust becomes active at the closing. So that's it. Three participants. And the law firm gets uh, 1%, I believe you said. And the financial advisor, depending on the value of the trust, gets somewhere between 1 and 1. and one and- Nope, you've got it, you've got it reversed. Oh. The, the law firm, based on the value, gets somewhere between 1 and 1.5% one time. And the financial advisor is always at 1%, never any higher, annually for the duration of the trust, based on whatever the net asset value is of the trust on the anniversary date of the trust. Right. And then you as the trustee receive one half of 1% on an ongoing basis as well. Annually. Correct. Yeah. That's great. And the fact that you were so dedicated to your clients based on the examples that you gave, a half a percent for that kind of continuity and that kind of client service is fantastic. Well, I appreciate that. And it's frankly one of the reasons why I'm really happy to be talking with you and to be talking to uh, taxpayers that have highly appreciated assets, want to dispose of them, and want to defer their taxes. I believe this deferred sales trust is the future. This is just as legal and just as good to go with the IRS as a traditional 1031 exchange. It's just a different section of the tax code. It's not a shelter. It's not anything that falls into an exception. There's something called a listed transaction, which is IRS shorthand for a, for, for a tax shelter. It's not a listed transaction. There's stuff on the internet about somebody that did a deferred sales trust ages and ages ago when things were not as organized as they are now. And without telling any of the other parties, the person had a brother-in-law or somebody that was related to them uh, act as the trustee. And the IRS had no problem with it initially until they found out that there was a related party transfer. The IRS wound up nullifying the deal, or I should say there was a private letter ruling out there that, was, that the taxpayer obtained, then secretively engaged in this related party transfer, which is a big no-no. And the IRS came back and it rescinded the, the private letter ruling, but only as to the related party transfer. The IRS went out of its way to say everything else in the transaction is pure 453. We're good with it. It was only this related party transfer. So I 
personally have been involved in dealings with the IRS in terms of this, is this something that I want to really get involved with in a big way? And are, is there going to be a regulatory issue or a tax issue or anything else? Why haven't you guys put a, a revenue procedure or something with some precedential value out there on this? So we only do that when something's brand new and different and, and, and an unusual application. This is a straight 453 transaction, and the way the Deferred Sales Trust works is exactly the way that Section 453, the installment sale provision, was designed to work. This is really a bunch of good people, professional people out there that have a vested interest in making sure that every user of the Deferred Sales Trust is happy because it's all reputation at this point. We want to make sure that everybody has a great experience and that everybody turns around and tells family and friends what a great experience they've had. I had a client that sold a business for $8 million and the entire $8 million went into the Deferred Sales Trust about three years ago. And I got a phone call the other night from the attorney of this gentleman that says he's selling another business and wants to put all of the proceeds into another deferred sales trust. And that makes me really happy. This guy, this was his biggest asset, this business that he sold for the $8 million. He started this thing out in a garage and wound up selling it years later for $8 million and trusted everybody enough to, to engage in this transaction. And three years down the road, he's just so happy with, with the tax deferral and the way that the investments are pr producing income for him every year that he's selling another business, not quite as big, wants to put 100% of the proceeds into a, def a new deferred sales trust. It's the reason why we do this. So, Michael, we're running out of time, but I do have two quick questions that I want to ask. When someone uses this strategy, we know that we have you as the trustee, we have the financial advisor is the financial advisor. What happens if, for whatever reason, you can no longer be the trustee or the financial advisor can no longer be the financial advisor? And then how much control, wh whether, they, whether you remain as a trustee and, or the financial advisor remains, how much control does the owner have on the assets in the trust? Is this something that they they just kind of go along with whatever the financial advisor recommends, or can they say no? I don't I don't want you to buy that bond. I I don't want to be in that fund. Okay, great questions both. Let me start with the second one first, and then I'll I'll go back to the first. The first the first question you had was really on succession issues, and the and the other one was on control issues. So let me address the control issue one first. In a general sense, prior to the trust being funded, the seller at that point, who's not yet the note holder, has had numerous meetings with the team, the financial advisor, the attorneys, the trustee. And seller has, come, has signed off on a, a very long and detailed risk tolerance questionnaire and has signed off on specific asset classes for uh, investment purposes uh, in terms of how much and what percentage of the money should go to which asset classes. Now, that can be amended periodically throughout the course of the investment on a grand scale in terms of, I think we should do more of this and less of this, and in terms of asset class. That being said, when you get into an issue where, where seller, note holder, picks up the phone, calls the trustee, 
or calls the financial advisor, him or herself, and, and says, sell Microsoft, buy Apple. That is not legal. And the reason that it's not legal is because of a tax uh, provision that's a doctrine is really the right word for it, called the constructive receipt doctrine. Basically, and nobody has to be a tax lawyer out there, but think about this with me for a moment. Uh, your trust received all of these funds that would have otherwise gone to you, but you're using the trust largely for tax deferral. That trust needs to be separate from you. If, in fact, you're able to pick up the phone and call the shots and say, buy this stock, sell this stock, it's almost like the proceeds of the sale have gone directly to you. And that's the way the IRS would view that. That would become a taxable event. You're not going to go to jail, but you're going to pay the taxes. I've got two things that I need to worry about as the trustee. One is to make sure that you are happy and that your funds are being invested the way you want to and that you're receiving your tax statements and your checks and everything else on time. Number two, which may actually be number one in my book, is to make sure that I don't allow you, the taxpayer, to inadvertently stumble into a taxable event. The whole reason why you've gone down this road, which is not a long or difficult or expensive road, but it, it's, you know, it's a road towards a deferred sales trust, is a desire to defer the taxes upon the sale of your property. If you do something because you feel like, I've got a hot stock tip or whatever, uh, that's going to undo all of the tax benefits of, of what we've been trying to do with the Deferred Sales Trust, I wouldn't be a very good trustee. Big picture, yes, you can make changes. And ultimately, remember, you're the bank. You're loaning the trust your money, but you're doing it in a tax-deferred way, and there are, are rules of the road that, that go along with that. Nobody's ever going to forget that, in essence, the trust has this money, but this is your money that you've lent to the trust. So what you're saying is that, you know, like you say, you can't call up and say sell Microsoft and buy Apple, but you're having ongoing conversations with your financial advisor and your trustee where you can make modifications, but everyone's making sure that they're not a taxable event. Correct. And by the same token, we realize that life events happen. Somebody has a child or somebody that needs expensive medical treatment that's not covered by insurance, and it's going to cost a million and a half dollars and whatever. You know, say, what are we going to do? I said, the answer would be, you're going to need to pay the taxes, the capital gains taxes on that portion of the money that you're going to take out at the rate that's applicable this year. And you know, we'll just reconfigure after that. You'll still get your, your note will still be enforced. It'll just be enforced with the, the money that's left, the principal that's left in, in the trust. So even though the note didn't specifically call for you taking a million and a half dollars out on such and such a year, we can do that. Nobody is going to forget that it's your money. The trick is to balance that uh, with the IRS's uh, uh, position as well and make sure that you're getting the benefit of the, of the bargain, so to speak, that you're obtaining your tax deferral and it's not being jeopardized because we were trying to help you out. And also the fact that we're nimble enough to be able to help out the taxpayer in an emergent situation or change of circumstances, life circumstances. So that's the answer to question two 
uh, about control. Question one was about succession. The other partner is the company in California that is the exclusive licensing agent for the Deferred Sales Trust. They not only have a network of highly trained, highly sophisticated financial advisors, any one of which is really conversant in everything that needs to be done for the Deferred Sales Trust, but there also are a dozen other people around the country that do what I do. So something happens to me and I'm incapacitated or something like that, it's a, it's a seamless transition to another trustee. Same thing with the financial advisors. The name of the company that distributes the deferred sales trust, whom everybody deals with, whether straight on or, or through people like me, and the same company that grants the, the licensures of trustees such as mine, is the estate planning team. More than adequate uh, replacements at a, on a moment's notice. So your investment doesn't go up in smoke and your trust doesn't disappear because one person for, for one reason or another drops out of the equation. Michael, thank you so much. And we've covered a lot of topics. Uh, I'm sure there might be some additional questions about Deferred Sales Trust. So if so, how would the listeners get in touch with you? Thank you so much, Bill. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Uh, this has been really enjoyable. Anybody that's looking to reach out to me, you can certainly get more information on my website, www.dstrustservices.com. That's dstrustservices.com. You can email me at M, as in Michael, B-U-R-W-I-C-K, at dstrustservices.com. That's M. Berwick at dstrustservices.com. Or you can always call me, uh, 617-459-3678. That's 617-459-3678. Again, Bill, it was a pleasure. Everyone, that's how you get in touch with Michael. Listen to the end to find out how to get in touch with me. Also, all our information is in the description of the podcast on your podcast app. Michael, that was great. Talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Don't want to miss an episode? Then subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music. Or just search for Realty Speak on your device's podcast app, like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Overcast on Apple devices. And now Realty Speak is also on Spotify. To share with others, just choose Share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you and I can connect to chat about your plans with your real estate investments whether to buy, sell, or just chat about strategies on what you currently own. The website is BillWeidner.com, and all my information is there. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.